dreams that equate to goals, dreams that equate to aspirations, things that we want to achieve, things that are most important in our lives. When I think of the word dream, it is difficult for me to not think of the friend who stuck closer than a brother to me, Barry Gilreath Sr. And I think about that word dream because Judy, his wife, gave him a plaque that he kept in his office, and she now has it in her office in the school system in Whitfield County. And it just simply said dream. One time when we were out, we found a little plant stick thing that you stick in your plants, you know, and that's kind of decorate them. And I was struck by it because it said dream. And so I have that there. And I always think of Barry because I think of the impossible dream as some thought the prospects of a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week network preaching nothing but truth, that that was simply an impossibility for us in our time, that it could not be achieved. But Barry didn't think in those terms. And thankfully, a great many brethren didn't think in those terms because they supported and ultimately brought to reality that dream, that dream that is still a reality and a work that is a great work indeed. The Good News Today television program initially was a part of that dream, a part of GBN. It was the flagship program for many years. And then White Oak took the oversight as the separation came from those two works, and those two works continued to work independently, but we work in a cooperative way to spread the gospel and to fulfill a dream. But you see, the key is that was not Barry Gilreath's dream, although he had the idea of the magazine format for Good News Today and for the network. It was not just his dream, and he knew that. And that's why he believed it could be achieved, because he thought that his dream was in harmony with the dream of God. And that's what I want us to talk about for a few minutes this afternoon as we continue our study of 1 Timothy. As we look at the first four verses of chapter 2 now, I want us to think about the dream of God because the dream of God is depicted here in Paul's inspired words. Listen to them. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me suggest to you that that is the dream of God, if you will. That is the desire of God, the dream of God, if you will. Summarize for us there in that fourth verse. The God of heaven who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What an exciting prospect to think about being a part of bringing to reality the dream of God. And that's what we've been Reminded of just here today in the very fine lesson that that John brought us in the worship hour about uh, or in the Bible study hour about the importance of each one of us taking very seriously our responsibility. 
When Adam Evans was here, it's ironic, both these men reminded us very soberly and seriously about that responsibility. You remember that? When we were challenged, we've been challenged twice in, in the last several months to take very seriously bringing to reality the dream of God. And I appreciate these men for that reminder. The local preacher always appreciates men coming in to, to remind the local congregation of responsibility. But we don't rely upon men coming in to do that. It's our responsibility to do that with each other, isn't it? It's our responsibility as every child of God to encourage one another, build one another up, and to remind one another, indeed, of what we've been reminded of so well just this day. And that is that there is the dream of God there, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and that I individually have a role to play in that. As John reminded us this morning, I can hand out a tract. But, you know, I couldn't help but think when he was talking this morning about the wonderful golden opportunity and the easy opportunity that each one of us has to evangelize personally because how easy it is to tell someone about a television program that they can watch in the privacy of their own home without even being intimidated by anyone or a tract that we can give them. But we have so many things that give people opportunity to hear the gospel. And I'm so pleased that White Oak has taken seriously and continues to take seriously their responsibility to evangelize through various means, as has been the case for years. But as we've been reminded of, there's no substitution for that personal involvement. And my contribution cannot substitute for my personal involvement and taking advantage of every opportunity that I have individually to influence someone whom the television program never may reach or attract, may never fall into uh, the hands of that individual. And so I appreciate the reminder we've been given and the sobering responsibility that we have. But this text also ties in with what we've been reminded of. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is? Well, what is is the first three, first two verses before we ever get to verse 4. Go back with me to verse 1. Therefore, and as we have often said, when we see therefore, we look to see what it's there for. And therefore obviously takes us back to the preceding verses of the first chapter. And so based on what Paul is telling Timothy about some issues that existed at the church at Ephesus and some who had had departed from the truth and some who were teaching things that were contrary to the doctrine of Christ, he emphasizes here how powerful and how pertinent prayer is in the life of the child of God. And if you'll notice how much detail he gives and how much priority he gives to prayer, it is striking. Therefore, I exhort, I plead with you, I beg you, but that does not mean that I'm simply suggesting this to you. It is still a command. It is still an exhortation that carries with it authority. But he's saying, I'm approaching you in this way. Please consider very carefully, first of all. That doesn't mean that prayer needs to be the first thing that we do in our worship service, although in some congregations that is the case. But that's not what he's saying. He's giving some priority and some preeminence to prayer. But he breaks that prayer down into four different words, all of which are different in the original language in which the New Testament was 
written. And there have been commentators who have basically said there's no real distinction that needs to be made among these four words, but why did Paul, by inspiration, use four different words? Why are they different words? I think there is some distinction. And the distinction tells us how powerful and important prayer was to the Apostle Paul because he breaks it down for us into specifics that should characterize our fervent and regular prayers to the throne of heaven. Supplications. Supplication carries the idea of a personal need, something that I feel very strongly that I need in my life, and I, I go to the God of heaven and plead with him. Supplication. Prayers, a little more generic term, but the idea of devotion there. Emphasis is on devotion. The Greek lexicographer Thayer speaks of the emphasis on devotion in this word that is translated prayers. And then what about intercessions? Well, Thayer says childlike confidence is involved. But intercession is a word that basically... Uh, explains itself to a great extent, doesn't it? Interceding many times on behalf of others. How many times in our lives as Christians, how many times when we go to God in prayer, do we go to God with intercessions for brothers and sisters in Christ for various reasons? Because of sickness, because of sorrow, perhaps because of weakness in their lives. For various reasons, we intercede. We bring to the throne of heaven the names of those whom we love and in whom we are concerned, about whom we are concerned. And then, of course, giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. How many prayers should we offer to God that exclude thanksgiving? Let me suggest none. None. Thanksgiving should permeate every Prayer, or should be existing in every prayer. It permeates our prayer lives. I think about Paul and what he wrote to the Philippians along those lines, and I think the way he put it there certainly makes my point for me from an inspired apostle. Remember Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Listen to it. With thanksgiving. Isn't that saying by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? In other words, thanksgiving is a given. That's just always there, Paul says. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so Paul gets very specific about the prayers that are so powerful and so important in the life of every child of God. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. But I want you to see the emphasis here in these four verses we're looking at on the word all. All. For kings, for all men, first of all. Verse 1. Be giving of thanks, prayers, supplications, be made for all men. For all men. Christians and non-Christians. Yes, it should be the case that we are vitally concerned about the precious souls of all men. We are certainly prohibited from praying for certain things for all men. We cannot pray that a person will be saved in his disobedience to God. 
That would be a prayer contrary to the will of God. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we are told to make sure that our prayers that are offered to God are offered within his will. And so there are things absolutely that are excluded from our prayer life based upon what the scriptures teach us. But there is at least something we can pray for all men, apparently. Must be because Paul tells us there is. And of course, that's in line with the dream of God. That all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. We can pray that that will occur. We can pray for opportunities for ourselves to come into contact with those who are outside of Christ. But after giving the expression to all men in verse 1, he then gets specific in verse 2. And here is something that is introduced to us about the responsibility that we have to pray for those who are in authority. And this is something that is done regularly here in our public prayers here that men lead. It's done in every congregation virtually that I could ever think about, praying for civil authorities. But what kind of prayers should be offered for those in, in, uh, in civil authority, in positions of authority? Should we pray for those who are leaders to be blessed in the sense that they are saved despite their disobedience to the will of God? Well, of course not. But there is still something about which we can pray, obviously, for kings, presidents, to make it pertinent to us today, and all who are in authority, even those who are of less authority than perhaps a king or, or a president. But the prayer is not to be offered for them per se from the standpoint of praying for their salvation apart from obedience to the gospel, or praying that God is going to bless them as they continue to live lives that are not in harmony with his will, or live lives uh, that are based upon a false religion, certainly not. But here's the key, really, the prayer that Paul exhorts us to pray for kings and for all in authority, as Wayne Jackson points this out in his commentary, they're really prayers for us. The prayers we pray for kings and those in authority are prayers for Christians, really. They are prayers that those who are in those positions of authority will conduct themselves at least in such a way as to allow us to do what? Lead a quiet and peaceable life. As Bobby pointed out in his prayer just a few moments ago, how thankful we are that we are in a position to be able to come here and to Worship God without fear of molestation from those civil authorities. Now think with me for a moment about the context in which these words were written by the Apostle Paul. Who was the Roman emperor at this time? Nero. Nero was emperor of Rome at this time. Do you think Paul was exhorting Christians to pray that Nero would continue to be blessed despite everything he was doing that was obviously contrary to the will of God? Of course not. But he said you can pray that whatever is done, whatever happens, those decisions that are made will not interfere with our ability to be able to worship and serve our God. And that is really the prayer that we offer for our leaders in civil government. The prayer is really for us that the things that they do, the legislation that is passed, etc., will be conducive to our being able to lead what? Quiet and peaceable lives. 
And you know something else this tells us? That if we're to pray for them, because we're praying to God that whatever they do will enable us to lead this kind of quiet and peaceable life. Basically, it says, does it not, that God is in charge. That God still rules in the kingdom of men. And we need to understand and appreciate that, yes, there are some things that God can bring to pass through his providence, even when those who are in those positions of authority are not followers of God. You go back with me to the book of Daniel, and you see a couple of statements there in regard to the two dreams that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, had. And you have a statement, for example, in Daniel 2 and verse 21. Verse 20, to gain the context, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. Listen to it. He removes the kings and raises up kings. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Then you go two chapters over to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. And again, as part of a context of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. This is part of the dream. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Do you think those words are still true today? Does God still rule in the kingdoms of men? Does God want us, expect us, desire for us as his people to pray that he will bring about through his providence those things that will be most conducive to our peace and our tranquility, to our ability to live godly lives? Of course he wants us to pray for that. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness. Piety is the idea here, the essence of religion, being pious and reverent. Some translations render that word reverence as gravity, but it indicates the idea of dignity and that our lives as Christians are to be lived in dignity. Now, the context in which we're looking at these verses, and more of that will become apparent as we get down to verse 8, for example. The context here generally is a public worship context. The prayers are prayers that are to be offered in a public worship setting, but that does not exclude an individual from praying these things, obviously. They have application, but the immediate context is going to be a worship assembly. You drop down to verse 8 just to preview that for a moment. I desire, therefore, that the men... You see, after we get through verse 7, after we get through verse 7, it becomes evident, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. That's clear that that's a worship context, a public worship context. And so much of what we're studying has application initially to the public worship, but also certainly has application to us as individuals for example, modesty. Modesty is enjoined upon women in this context when we come to verse, uh, 
9 and verse 10. Well, does that mean that since this was given in a worship, public worship context, that the women only have to be modest when they're in worship? Well, of course not. We know better than that. But my point is that that's the immediate context in which Paul is legislating certain things. And one of those legislative items in verse 8 is that the men pray everywhere. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But that word man is not mankind. That is not men and women. There is a word in the original language that means men and women. In other words, mankind. Paul didn't use the word mankind. He used the word aner for male. The male of the species is the only one who's authorized to offer and lead prayer in public worship. Despite what is happening today, not only in the denominational world, but tragically at times in the church as well. But we'll get more to that at verse 8. But just to remind ourselves that this is a context in which public worship is primarily under consideration. This is good. Now we're back to verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know, that's a sobering thought in itself. In the sight of God our Savior, which is a reminder that what? God sees everything. God sees it all. But what is it that's good? Well, it's good that we lead quiet and peaceable lives. And we need to pray for those in authority so that that will come to pass because that's good and acceptable. God wants us to do that, verse 3. He wants us to do that and he wants the setting, the environment in which we function as Christians to be as conducive as possible to what? Evangelizing the world. And that gets us back to the dream of God in verse 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now verse 4, who desires all men, there's our all again, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Can you think of a doctrine that those two words, all men, in verse 4, defeats clearly and emphatically and finally? Calvinism. Who desires what? The elect. (laughs) No. The passage doesn't say he desires the elect to be saved. Those whom he has already determined he's going to save. If Calvinism were true, how could Paul ever pen those words? The dream of God is a universal dream. It is a dream for all men to be saved. Calvinism denies that. It's false to its core, isn't it, tragically? And it's so sad that people have struggled and waited and prayed fruitlessly, waiting for some direct operation of the Spirit and some clear, miraculous indication that they are among the elect when all they ever had to do was simply obey the gospel of Christ to be among the elect, as the scripture speaks of them. The dream of God. What an exciting and satisfying prospect that we can be, and are if we're Christians here today, a part of helping fulfill the dream of God in this generation. That ought to excite us, that ought to motivate us beyond measure to realize that we are partakers of the divine nature as Christians and partakers of the dream of God. This afternoon, if you're not a part of that dream, it's because 
You either haven't obeyed the gospel, or if you have, you've lost sight of the passion of being a part of that dream. In either case, you need to make a change, either publicly or privately. Of course, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't become a part of the dream of God because you have not believed, repented, confessed Christ, and been buried in baptism, then that needs to be done, obviously, in a public way. That is, you must... You must repent, you must confess that Jesus is the Christ before men and live that confession every day of your life after you rise from a watery grave where the blood of Christ has cleansed you from every sin. And as you arise from that watery grave, how important it is never to lose sight of the blessed privilege that you have been given as a result of responding to the grace of God, as John talked about that marvelous, matchless grace this morning, through obedient faith in order to become a worker for the Lord. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in becoming a Christian or coming home to your first love, we plead with you to do that. If you need no public response whatsoever, but simply reassurance that what you are doing as a passionate, devoted worker for the Lord is a privilege beyond expression and one that we should never take for granted. Let's do all that we can to expand the borders of the kingdom and help to make the dream of God a reality in our lifetime. As we stand to sing, will you come?